Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I entered this conversation with Marpipe founder and CEO Dan Pantello, interested and curious about the science of personalised online advertising and left excited and educated. What works, what doesn't, learnings, mistakes? This was an engaging insight into a world that touches us every day. Hi, Tony Hackett is my name, and I am your host at the Startups Roundtable. And I won't hold you up. Let's meet Dan. I'm Dan Pantella. I'm the founder and CEO of Marpipe. Marpipe is a multivariate creative testing platform that allows marketers and creatives to create hundreds to thousands of versions of their ad creative and launch it into experiments and immediately understand why people like their creative and what creative elements people love most or hate most about their creative, which gives us data to inform the creative production process going forward. When you introduce it like that, that sounds compelling. I've looked at at your demos on your website and the logic of it is overwhelming. And yet here you are starting a company to actually help people do this. Why hasn't it been a powerful default? And where was that moment where you thought, I really need to start my own company and to do this? Yeah, that's an excellent question. This is one of those things that a lot of people look at and they kind of raise an eyebrow and they're like, this doesn't already exist. Oh, like, why doesn't this exist already? What are you sitting on that's that makes it so different? Uh, that's a really common response to, to what we're building. And the way that we came, came across it was, at, it was actually almost by accident. Out of college, I started running a digital marketing agency. We started handling full service end-to-end campaign management for a lot of startups. We ended up opening up our first office in Soho in New York City, and we were in a startup incubator. So we were in really close physical proximity, working together with a bunch of these uh, folks who had just raised some venture seed rounds and you know, coming out of Techstars and YC, some of the best incubators. And they had a lot of money and they needed to spend it. And we were there to be able to uh, provide them with creative production and, and run their, their campaigns. And so really quickly, we actually started managing a lot of ad spend. And startups that raise venture spend particularly aggressively. Around 40 cents of every venture dollar goes into Facebook and Google ads. For direct-to-consumer companies, that's that, that ratio is even higher. So when we were doing this, we were under a performance mandate, meaning like our, our clients just really cared most about money in and money out. You know, how much money did I spend and what did that make me? Essentially, we were always optimizing, uh, searching for optimizing on performance. We were really tactical performance marketers. One of the things that we discovered very quickly running this agency was something that when I and when I when I say this to some people, it's uh, it's surprising. To some people, it, it, it's uh, it's very obvious, but it almost always evokes some sort of reaction. The most important element in advertising success is not what many people think it is. It's not audience targeting. It's not brand. It's not even reach. These things actually pale in comparison in importance to advertising success when compared to creative. Creative is by far the most influential element in advertising success. And when I say creative, I'm referring to even the most granular 
and most nuanced details in the creative. We would notice when we would change the background color in a high-performing ad from blue to green, place a, a cactus somewhere in the background with a palm tree, something really small. This would have major impacts on performance. If you looked at the performance of this new creative that was just slightly altered, it's like you wouldn't even recognize that it was the same ad if you were only looking at the metrics. And so when we saw how much there's data a lot of data, especially recently coming out of Facebook and Nielsen, that indicates that that backs up how important creative was. But when we saw it firsthand in this way, we immediately thought to ourselves, okay, if every single nuanced, granular, small creative decision has such a big impact, how are we making those decisions? What's our decision-making process there? The answer is just guessing. Right now in creative production, it works the same way it's always worked. This is like something that's been pretty undisrupted since the Mad Men days. A lot of it hinges on taste making, which, you know, as data driven people, we sometimes tend to view as uh, arbitrary decision making. It's really a lot of guessing and checking. And so we thought there should be a, a data driven way to be able to make these decisions. A really interesting question to ask people in creative and marketing is what information do you use to decide what your ads look like? Because that's the most important decision you're making with the largest area of spending your budget. And very seldom do people have like a good answer for that question. Even at the highest levels of expertise in the field, people kind of grasp at straws. And so multivariate testing is the answer to how to get to data-driven creative. The thing is, people cringe and like turn away in, in a repulsion almost when you mention multivariate testing. Because it's so hard to do. To actually pull off multivariate testing, it's like almost practically impossible because you need essentially to, to run a multivariate test, you need essentially an army, a small army of creatives to essentially churn out every potential version of an ad that uh, essentially represents every possible permutation of all the variables you've outlined that you're interested in understanding how they impact performance. So this ends up being hundreds to thousands of ads in a, in a, in a suite, like organized in a grid. They need a team of campaign managers to, to actually upload each of those one by one and run them to statistical significance. They need a data science arm to make sense of all of it. And so today, multivariate testing is only reserved for the Fortune 500s who can actually afford it and have the know-how to do it. The reason why, you would, why it's even talked about and why you would even assume such a high heavy lift process is because every time that you run a multivariate test, you get two things out of it that are extremely valuable for brands. You get one is positive outliers, positive performance outliers, right? So when you run and you test that many ads, you get some that just perform so anomalously higher than the rest of the pack. This is something that you hand on a silver platter to any digital marketer and they scale the hell out of that. And performance overall on the campaign goes up. Then number two is you get to tell creatives for the first time, these brands can understand, hey, it's actually the background color that you're using that is really driving the performance of this ad. And actually this logo that you've placed in the bottom right corner, it's actually bringing down the performance of that in this really good ad. You should take it out, it'll perform a lot better. And so this sort of new data, this creative component intelligence is only able to be accessed through multivariate testing. The thing is no one can actually do multivariate testing at scale because there's just too much overhead. If everyone could do it easily, as easily as A-B testing, then then it would, it would be like unanimous. Everyone would run multivariate tests all day. And so in building Marpipe, that context, that little backstory was necessary to just communicate that when we started building these, these little tools to automate these little processes, 
so we could do it ourselves as an agency for our clients. We thought we were like building something that would give us an advantage and new business. And we were like, we're going to have this thing that no other agency will have. And we were thinking about it. Wow, our agency is going to be so incredible. We're going to have this like offering that no other agency could offer. And then when we rolled it out, when we started showing these brands that were spending so like over $100,000 a month on Facebook and Instagram ads, we started telling them for the first time, hey, this graphic that you think works really well, it actually sucks. People hate it. Or this logo that you'd never use, you always just kind of leave it on the side burner. People love that. You should, you should always use that. We started like teaching these, these folks for the first time, these new things that they had never known. And it kind of, the word of mouth was a little bit, almost like a viral effect. We had people reaching out to us being like, Hey Dan, I know you have an agency. I don't care about your agency. I just want to know, how did you do multivariate testing? (laughs) And then we kind of realized, Hey, you know, we're actually not an agency. We're, we're a technology company. And the world doesn't need another agency, but we just filled the void in being able to provide cheap, fast, and automated multivariate testing. It took a lot of tries. We guinea pig tested it on, a, on our clients for a really long time before we got it right. So we flunked out a lot. And it's a really methodologically rigorous process that you absolutely have to nail. But that's where automation and technology comes in. That is so interesting. I, I must say, as you're describing that, I start to think when you go and talk to customers, prospects, there'll be a pocket that would be so excited that you turned up and there would be a pocket that would wish you'd never walk through the door because I got life's gone fine. And it's, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you exactly as it went through my mind, Dan, I was, I was picturing going into the hardware and if all we had were black and white paint, simple world, super. I, I can do enough there, create some level of variety, but all of a sudden I've, I've got the, the, the Torbman's palette. And now if I'm impatient, I don't want to know you exist. And for you to engage with me, if I have a strategy and a vision, I'm pretty excited to meet you. But if I'm just getting it done, knocking it out, then I don't. So how do you business develop? How do you work out how to make yourself attractive to those that wish you didn't exist? And then how do you actually find the people that are so excited with what you're able to help them do in the multivariate testing? There are people who are scared of us and scared of this. Um, as a concept and scared of the idea of data-driven creative. Those simply simply said, those just aren't people we're trying to, to appeal to or win over. So there's no shortage of folks who are really trying to do anything they can to get an edge over their competition. And those folks to them, it's we don't have to sell. It's It's crystal clear. They come to us describing how painful the manual process is that they have to do to actually run and conduct centralized creative testing and gather their own creative data. And it's kind of a space where everyone's just kind of guessing in the dark. People are trying to figure it out in-house internally. It's really it's it's really this kind of like opaque ecosystem and and folks try to like be secretive about their internal practices on it too so that other companies don't learn. But those are our customers. A, a breed of creatives, if you will, that think that a- advertising creative is an art of uh, an art form. And don't get me wrong, there is there will always be a need for creatives in the process. But the machines will never be able to to replace human creatives totally. We see it as an empowering prospect. Uh, we see that hey, like if creatives, if we can be in a world where creatives are empowered with data, they'll be able to create significantly better creative at scale. And so that results in an environment where consumers see more of what they like to see. And so. There's, there's the argument that 
there should there's no place for data in in creativity. We think that as we move into the digital marketing world, there's no place for the old school approach anymore. I mean, creative has been totally as creative production as a field has really been undisrupted by data, machine learning, AI, and that is disrupting every other field of advertising. It hasn't touched creative yet. If you look at like kind of the history, like the the trajectory of the of online marketing as an industry, there are what's what what we like to refer to internally as like three trillion dollar waves. There were like three major moments that happened that resulted in uh, creating trillions of dollars of value. The first was like when people started realizing they could run ads online, inventory was scattered all over the place. Like if I own a blog and you own a blog and we have a bunch of a million people each on our blog every month, to and uh, Nike would have to call us personally, call me, strike a deal with me, then call you, strike a deal with you, and you would have to then put up the picture on your site, right? And so there there became, what solved that problem was ad networks and DSPs. And so that came along and that's where you have companies like the Trade Desk today, which is worth more. Trade The Trade Desk is the largest DSP. The DSP stands for uh, Demand Side Platform for Advertising. And they're currently worth more than Macy's, Gap and American Airlines combined. So these companies consolidate internet inventory and it's all data-driven and it's all AI-driven through automated bidding systems that allow brands to dynamically buy creative over uh, all hundreds to thousands of inventory places. Um, the second wave was audience targeting. Now that we could centralize the inventory and buy dynamically and more effectively. Now we need to know who we're serving ads to. There's no identity, like there's no identities associated with these eyeballs. And so we need to like have an understanding of demographics and behaviors um, in order to be able to tailor the creative. You might not want to see an ad for lingerie. It might not be relevant to you. And maybe Victoria's Secret might not want to serve you an ad. And so there were all of these, there, there, was, there was a whole like swarm of startups that came up to solve these problems, right? Using machine learning and AI, a lot of really like sophisticated data-driven technology to actually come in and be able to associate identities um, and provide advertise, ad, advertising buyers with really good ideas of identity so that they could buy against that and use that to make purchasing decisions. This was a huge moment in the industry that happened, you know, in around like 08. And it created a lot of startups that were bought up by Facebook, Google, and those folks aggregated all that data, right? The next thing that needs to be done, the third wave, didn't happen yet. It will happen this in this decade, in the twenty, in the twentieth, de- in the um, twenty twenty decade. We're definitely going to see that the way that creative is made is going to transform completely. It's such a wide playing field because it just hasn't it hasn't even been touched yet and those are where you're going to see the biggest billion dollar exits and uh, companies creating the next wave of a trillion dollars of value in in the space um, and we hope that our answer could be the one that that answers some of those questions and explores a big chunk of that opportunity but we know we won't be the only ones and it's kind of like a who can get there first Dan do you see uh, organizations uh, working differently? to retain versus acquire? So if I've already got you, are people into more of a a running stream or are they attaching to the multivariate approach regardless because they realize that if we've already got a customer, it's easy to retain? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We typically, our focus is really on top of funnel acquisition and retention activities can definitely happen through creative and it's very popular, like through retargeting. 
you know, those ads that follow you around after you buy from somewhere. But then uh, a lot of it happens internally in, in the company's kind of internal marketing mechanism. So you see like email campaigns and deals like like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of strategies that go into retention. We're mostly focused on top of funnel acquisition, but there's there's absolutely no reason why the same thesis can't be applied to to retention. People like to see different creative and visual stimuli in order to engage in retention and repurchase activities as opposed to a first time purchase. And so we have a bunch of customers who apply it for both and then get really interesting data on what are the differences of what people want to see when they've already bought once, as opposed to someone who's never heard of our brand before. Could you take me a little bit behind your organization and talk about that a little bit? When you first started, the the sorts of things you thought were important and, and from a KPI point of view, and maybe how that has changed for you as, as, as you've moved forward, to give that sense of you as a startup and as a business, the sorts of decisions you've had to make and how you go about making decisions now. I can tell you definitely about a major road bump that really rocked the ship for us. And I think there's a there's a lesson in it for most folks. I'm a very sales and revenue driven founder. So I'm kind of bred that way because I bootstrapped my own business that was successful before I raised capital and turned it into a venture backed company. And bootstrapping a business I, from scratch to run a million dollars in ARR within about a year or a year and a half, it required a really scrappy decision-making um, and also uh, like a prioritization of revenue over everything. And so we ended up making a lot of decisions to chase the money. And so when we raised our seed round in Q4 of 2020, we, we just closed that. Uh, we raised a seed round of 1.7 million. And that gave us the room to actually breathe and actually say, okay, wait, let's figure out what we actually want to focus on. Well, the way we had to build it was I used the profit from the agency in order to buy engineers to start building these tools. It was in, I was investing in, in the engineers to build it for the agency, right? The engineers were the only ones who could use the product that they built. It was all back-end raw code. And so the only way we could provide this service and actually use the tools is, was through a managed service. And effectively, our engineers had to use the product that we built on behalf of our customers, which made it really expensive. Our managed service, it was starting at 5K per month in a service fee and just went up pretty quickly from there. Obviously, that tells you kind of what kind of customers we had to talk to. And it also did never allowed us to really scale because engineers providing a service is just a bad idea. You want engineers building things. You don't want them provide like actually providing a service. Um, that's like a 100% recipe for failure, you know. And so we knew we had to get out of there really quickly. And so we pivoted. We we had to essentially to have our engineers have enough bandwidth to build the front end of the product, so that we could actually have a scalable product and a much more affordable offering for everyone. We had to stop taking new business. It was the only way. And so at the beginning of the year, we decided, let's stop taking new business. And of course, right after we made that decision, a ton of incredible leads came through the door. And we had to, we had to kick the can down the road with these folks. And it was one of the most painful things I've ever done. Um, and my team, 
will tell you of the grueling hours they had to spend sitting me down and convincing me to just let it go <laughs> because it's what, what we knew we had to do. Um, and so we haven't been taking new business this year and we're sitting on an offering that a lot of folks are really interested in what we did in order to our growth KPIs transitioned from revenue growth into a wait list. We have a wait list right now going that we started ever since we stopped taking new business. And so our primary growth KPI is actually just growing the wait list. At, we, we have around over, over 800 people on the wait list. And these are marketers and creatives from like all different shapes and sizes of organizations. We've actually seen in, in the past four weeks, the weekly sign up rate for our wait list almost 3x without any sort of change to marketing or, or creative. And there, I think there are some variables behind that that are very COVID related that we can dive into. But it was hard to make that transition. And it's hard to, especially when you have investors that are really interested in seeing revenue growth, it's really important to actually be able to take a step back and pivot back to a product focus that you know will hurt you now, but will be will be the thing that sets you apart from everyone else in six months or 12 months down the line. It was a tough decision to make, certainly. Thanks for sharing that. That's a wonderful story. I mean, a wonderful story. Yeah, it must have been a terrible story to live. But it, it also did speak to another question that was on my mind, and that is, when you go and speak, or when you look at the universe, everyone's looking pretty much like a customer. And when they understand your story, it's like, everyone should be doing that. So then how do you work out what not to do versus the what to do? And that level of focus, that's pretty powerful. And as I say, it's really easy for me to intellectually sit on the other side of this conversation. Go, yeah, that makes sense. In the moment, that must have been diabolical to live through. Yeah, it was it was rough. And right now we find ourselves in a place where revenue hasn't moved. And so like if you look at our business on paper, yeah, we've told everyone we're 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 shift we're pivoting to focus on on building product and we're sprinting as fast as we can to be able to to ship this offering. And so we're so excited all the time about the new things that we're building and the new tools that we're able to launch and see internally that we've built and we think we're making incredibly fast progress and we're so proud of ourselves but when you look at the business on paper it's like nothing to be happy about and so it's it's actually you know as a founder and just just as in, in any operations role you really need to take stock of what's resulting in your growth today and is it healthy to rely on that going forward we knew we kind of we had like this bad addiction and we needed to kick the habit um, in order to take the habit, we need to build a replacement. In the age of digital transformation right now, I can only imagine how relevant that's becoming to more and more businesses. Could not agree more. You, you touched on uh, on incubators just a short time ago. I'm wondering if you could provide uh, your commentary around, if somebody was listening to this and thinking, I've got this cracking idea, I'm about to take that step to to start to build my own my own venture what you would say to them about uh, incubator programs and also maybe about mentors and how to think about mentors, how to identify what really is important when looking for a mentor. Incubators and uh, mentors are, in my opinion, absolutely prerequisite. There's no way that like, so I think most founders fit like a certain social personality type. And that what's really empowering to those personality types that I typically see in most founders is uh, community and peer reinforcement. And it's the the motivation. And I think actually, outside of COVID era, uh, physically being there, there's absolutely no replacement for it that you get from the the social learning um, and the growth. You're able to just, just by being in the trenches with these folks, those late nights, the conversations that happen there are like, you know, that like the idea for Marpipe happened 
late night while we were drinking some beers in air in a startup incubator called area 51. And, uh, and it's like, there are, there were uh, companies that raised millions of dollars that came up with their ideas to pivot over just early morning or late night conversations. And there was so much magic that happened there. And so many of those folks from that cohort are now doing such incredible things. And sometimes we, we talk and catch up and we talk about like, wow, isn't it crazy that, that everyone ended up doing so well? It, when you look back, it really wasn't that crazy. The empowerment that you get from this kind of like going through this really intense trial and tribulation driven process with, with a team, it's like you can't do it alone. You have to feel like you're almost there like as a team. And early on when you're founding, it's you or you and your partner alone. Mentors, I look at a lot of the same way, but slight, with a slightly more strategic and a, a slightly more transactional angle. With mentors, it's it's important to find mentors that have like strategic insights um, and particular experiences that are directly relevant to what you're trying to do. I was always hungry for mentorship. I still am. And I think that there's knowledge to be gained from anyone that you talk to, no matter what their background is. I think you can learn from everyone. But when it comes to selecting your mentors, I think it's important to be really upfront and transactional about like why you're interested in their mentorship and advice. And they're actually getting something really valuable out of it too, because a lot of these folks actually find a lot of fulfillment and value in mentoring. These people turn into probably your, your advisors, and that becomes very transactional because advisors usually have equity or some sort of compensation. And uh, one thing I'll also caveat this with uh, uh, that's important to note is you want to be trying to always constantly outgrow your advisors. Like the advisors that were relevant for me, that were most relevant for me in our earlier days are no longer so relevant anymore. It's not like uh, they're surprised by me saying this. We have conversations where they're like, they're like, Dan, I, I don't know, I, I don't know that I can help you with this anymore. Like this is this is like I've never dealt with anything with this before. You know, let me intro you to some people. And so you actually grow through your advisors, interestingly enough, right? Like you should be outgrowing your advisor. You should be see- constantly seeking other advisors that are more relevant based on your stage, your size. And what thing you're choosing to focus on that particular quarter or, or series of quarters that's ahead of you. So that advice is is the sort of advice you can't get out of the the handbook. I really appreciate that you'd share those two elements, and it feels like a a wonderful place for us to to wrap up this conversation. I must say I couldn't be more excited about anyone's business than yours, and thank you for sharing that. But also taking us behind and and sharing some some knowledge and experience that uh, you can only get by having lived it. So I really appreciate you joining me today and thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is great. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dan as much as I did. But that's it for today. Thank you and bye for now.